Welcome back and to series two of The Skin Pod with me, Louise Thomas-Mins, skin health therapist, educator, product founder and serial entrepreneur. I am excited to bring you once again a whole host of special guests who all have one thing in common, an interest, an obsession in skincare. Before we get going with this week's episode, I want to tell you about the sponsors of this series, which happens to be very close to my heart, as it's Louise Thomas Skincare, a real labour of love uh, that started some 18 years ago, um, was to develop and formulate my own signature skincare range. Seven years ago, I started this process and earlier in 2022, I launched the first in the range, The Cleanser. It's really been a tough ride to get to launch with my vision being quite a simple one. Through my passion, expertise and education, I aim to empower everybody to take control of their skin health. You can learn more about my mission and the products at louisethomasskincare.co.uk. There's nothing like at the end of the day, cleaning, pulling hair out of a drain on a daily basis, you know, you cannot fault the fact that I work hard. You can't say I don't. And so it's just that one thing that I'm really good at is working hard. Turn the business around like in three months because it wasn't making any money. You'd have to be a genius to go, yeah, I'm going to create a makeup brand and put it into boots. I mean, we had a lot of arguments with them. They didn't like the fact that things were clear packaging. You have to have broad shoulders. You have to, but equally, you can't spend years and years and years not getting a good night's sleep. And somebody left off a zero on the data. Kendall OBE has a beauty industry career spanning 30 plus years. She has championed some of beauty's most exciting brands, developed the iconic Ruby and Millie makeup brand, founded the British Beauty Council and commissioned groundbreaking industry reports. I am honoured and excited to have Millie join me today on the Skin Pod. Millie, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, bless you. Well, oh. 30 plus years makes me feel very old. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, just, yeah, you're like, oh, thanks, Louise. That's a great, great start. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I need to get that across because I'm sure lots of our listeners are going to know who you are. But I'm also going to assume a little bit that people need to, of course, know the story. And we're going to start with that cliche of kind of where it all began. Mm-hmm. My intrigue, and actually, there's a little bit of similarity here because am I right in saying that you started age 13 shampooing hair in a salon yeah yeah, yeah my dad's a hairdresser so I started um oh. I had a Saturday job and I used to go into the salon on a Saturday and wash hair I loved it because I made money <laughs> yeah well you see I had a not not in a hair salon but in a beauty salon I was probably about 15 and yeah, I kind of accidentally fell into that, but did all of the things that are really unglamorous, you know, kind of cleaning the nail polishes, literally mm. scrubbing the shower, 
And yet still, <laughs> it didn't put me still off. Still loved it. Um, still loved it. Yeah, exactly. Still loved it. I mean, there's nothing like at the end of the day, cleaning, pulling hair out of a drain on a daily basis, you know, <laughs> to, to, I mean, that's got to be, it's one of those things that you think, why doesn't that put me off? I don't know why it didn't put me off. And, and also not every client is, is pleasant and, you know, and, and not every client is easy. I mean, it's not always that easy, really, doing those kind of no. sort of those tasks. But uh, funny enough, one of the first jobs I had, I was I was actually came into the salon and somebody had stepped in dog poop and I was asked <gasps> to clean it off the staircase. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't believe this is what they're, they're making me do. And I did it without question. I just I just did it without question, you know. It was my job. What could you do? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and have you always had that kind of work ethic? Do you think that came from your dad? Did you sort of grow up in that environment of, yeah, you know, it's yeah. hardworking? And, and like you say, you don't sort of question. That's just, yeah, that's just what you do. It's not glamorous. And actually, if I want to progress, then I just get on with it. And I don't, I don't think I ever thought about progressing. And I probably still don't to this day. I think the thing is, is that I always think people are very critical and people can judge. But if I do my very best, I do my level best, I work as hard as possible, I might not be the best at what I do, I might not make the best decisions, I might not be the nicest person in the world, but you cannot fault the fact that I work hard. You can't say I don't. And so it's just that one thing that I'm really good at is working hard. And so yeah, I don't know why, it's just that thing, because otherwise you, know, you can criticise everything else, but you can't criticise that. I don't know why it's sort of, no. that's always stuck with me of something I can do really well is work hard. Yeah, absolutely. And then was that in the States that you started working? Yes. So, so my parents moved to America in 1979 and I was 11 at the time. And oh, wow. so my dad was working as a hairdresser in the States. So I was 13. I mean, I didn't even know if it was legal, but I was definitely doing it. So, but yeah, that was probably in the sort of early 80s in the US yeah and a real kind of eye-opening time I think actually in terms of you know sort of lots of change and you know from a just from a diversity viewpoint it must have been really different kind of what you were exposed to Mm. and and actually just giving you a whole world of life experience because I mean the things you hear and see that go on in salons at that age are I mean it yeah, certainly sure, there are yeah. still things that I do now or things that I like that I think oh do you know what I know why I like this it's because there was that client that told me about they always used to do that I don't know at Christmas and I used to kind of listen in and think oh, I'm gonna do that one day when I'm a grown-up yeah yeah god yeah you meet so many amazing people and there's so many things that you learn and here like you said like I had one boss I worked in a hair salon I had one boss that was really like would make us all do yoga and you know this was the 80s you know this was like way ahead of its time yeah there's there's some really interesting things that you learn and and clients are really interesting and how the business owners run their businesses is always very different that's quite interesting to watch how people run their businesses and just the way people interact with each other and I also think that that you know for a young kid and I was quite rebellious particularly in hairdressing there's a lot of the lgbtq community lgbtqia community that work in that environment and i just always thought it was a really creative exciting place to work because people were just really fun 
And so the social aspect of working in a hair salon was brilliant. I mean, from the from the very time I, I sort of worked in the States when I was 13, by the time I was like 15, 16, I was working in London on a youth training scheme at Tony and Guy. And Tony and Guy only had one salon at the time. I think they were just about, or oh, yeah. they had two, they just launched Sloan Square. And I mean, the social aspect of, you know, we'd go and work at the Tony and Guy Academy in St. Christopher's Place, and then we'd all go to the pub afterwards as like 16-year-olds and, you know, stay up all night. I mean, it was just madness. But it was so much fun and there was so much freedom, you know. Yeah, and like you say, that was just normal. That was the the culture. That's just what you did and then you talked about it the next day. And where was that transition from hair into sort of more beauty? Yeah, well, I mean, I was just a terror. I was a... Yeah, very good party girl. I'm very good at the social aspect of it. Not so good with the actual hairdressing stuff. <laughs> I just not. I can't cut hair, basically. I just can't. I don't know what it is. I think it's something to do with the fact that hairdressing, well, there's two types of hairdressing in there. There's cutting hair and then there's colouring hair. Colouring hair yeah. is very much based around chemistry. You really have to understand chemicals and chemistry. And colour. And I, I get colour. I do get colour. I kind of, I do understand that. I've got a very good visual eye. Hair cutting is based on geometry. And I was very good at numbers and very good at maths. And I loved algebra, but I wasn't very good with geometry. Don't get shapes and sizes and lengths and distance. And when you cut hair, you have to cut it based on sort of, you know, as you pull the sections, it's quite geometric. So whilst a lot of people think that hairdressers maybe don't really understand maths or science or whatever actually both of those disciplines are very much based on skills that evolve from those from from maths and, and science and I just wasn't good at it I just wasn't good at it and also I don't particularly like things that are permanent <laughs> so yeah. so I just and I love makeup I kind of I, I was never a big makeup wearer but I um I like the colour and the formulations and I like the visual aspect of it. I also like the fact you could put it on and take it off. Yeah, it wasn't permanent. That was a big, that was a big plus. Yeah, that was a big plus for me. Because you could experiment with something and then you could take it off and you could start again. Yeah. And so went to then train as a makeup artist or was it just something that you sort of... No, because back in that day, those days, you didn't train to do anything. You just did it. Yeah, you just assisted people. So basically, I'd never really worked as a makeup artist. What happened was, I worked in a hair salon. They had an area in the hair salon that was dedicated to sort of makeup, so clients could put makeup on before they were left the salon. And I really loved makeup, and I couldn't do hairdressing anymore. My dad knew this woman who was a manager of a makeup boutique, and it just sold one brand of makeup. And it was a very modern, kind of quite forward-thinking brand of makeup. And they needed people to work there. So I got a job working there. And I just so happened to be quite good at selling makeup and using it. And then my dad's friend quit. And so I took her job. And I t turned the business around like in three months because it wasn't making any money. And was that sort of then your link to thinking about oh, actually you know can I how can I produce my own brand it's all very accidental <laughs> yeah it's not it's not it's sort of creative it, element do you know what I mean it's interesting because you this is um I, I think it's probably interesting because when some people look at my career they probably think that I had an intention of 
going from one thing to the other and I had a plan. There's no plan. Everything I've ever done is completely and utterly opportunistic. I had no intention of creating my own brand. In fact, I, when the opportunity came about, I probably stopped and thought about it for a year and a half before wow. I agreed to do it because yeah. I really did not want to be the front person of anything. And it just, it just happened that I worked for this Japanese company. I came to the UK with, a, with them. I did very well. I created a very successful brand globally for this company. And it just so happened that a woman that I came in contact with who was the buyer at one of the stores happened to go to Boots. She called me up asking if the brand would sell in boots and I said never it's too premium it would ne they would never want to do it and she said oh god I wish we could make something I wish we could do something and make something and I was like mm, that's interesting and wow. um and it just sort of yeah sometimes those things just happen you have an opportunity to do something it takes a lot of thought to get to the point where you actually do it but that yeah opportunities present themselves to you you don't always and maybe you do sort of create them by proxy but it's not like I sort of because a lot of the things that I've done in my career no one ever did before so no you'd have to be a genius to go yeah I'm gonna create a makeup brand and put it into boots and it'd be the first brand that you know it, it just people do I'd be a genius if I thought like that and I'm not. I just, somebody presents me with an opportunity and I'm like, mm, no one's ever done that before. That'll be interesting. Yeah. And were you able to sort of, I mean, I know there was quite a specific niche there, I guess, wasn't there? Because obviously mm. understanding boots, for example, and the target market of boots, did that help you to visualise how that brand needed to be or again was it actually do you know what I know that this is what well, as a makeup artist these are the things that really annoy me I want this product to be functional I mean I remember like the great little twist up cheek tints and oh the cheek tints yeah 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 and it was it was beautiful but very simplified when we did that there was no beauty in boots for me to buy I would never as a consumer have gone to boots to buy anything because I would only ever really get tampons in there because there was no beauty. There was number seven, number 17, and natural organic yeah. natural collection or something. Yes. And Alme. There wasn't, yeah. there was no Dior and Lauder and Benefit, none of the brands that they have today. So there was no reason for me to ever go there. It wasn't the kind of place I would shop in. So when we went to sorts, and I didn't really know the customer there at all because it wasn't a place that I shop. So actually, it wasn't sort of like that. It was more of this is what I would want in a product. I'm going to develop my absolute dream makeup range and as long as it comes in within the cost restrictions that they had right so as long as it came in budget they were going to make it so I mean we had a lot of arguments with them they didn't like the fact that things were clear packaging they didn't like the transparent packaging they said the customer will see exactly how much is in it and I'm like well that's exactly the point so that's when you joy, create a yes. pack <laughs> And you've got, because a lot of the brands, so I said to them, so I went out and I bought all the different products that I thought matched what we were creating to a degree. And I showed them that actually what we had was more per grams than the other brands did. It looked tiny, but what those other brands did was yeah. they had shrouded packs with even tinier amounts in. So I felt that as long as we could say that, then we, then it stood up, stood the test of, you know, criticism. 
Yeah. I think it's always very important to assume that you're going to be judged and criticised. And so you've got to kind of get your ducks in a row so that there's no loopholes for people to kind of point the finger and say, oh, look, they're ripping us off. They're only giving us two grams of cheap tint. And, you know, and yet I knew that I want, you know, 3.5 grams was a reasonable amount. So... Yeah, and I think literally it was really transparent, was it? And and mm. I know some one of my kind of values, I'm just dipping my toe into this water after a bit of a rocky few years of getting here. But one of my values has always been to just be really transparent about what yeah. I'm using, what ingredients I've chosen and why. And if they're, yeah. you know, you know what it's like when you're starting out as a brand, you can't mm. do all of the things that these other big brands are doing. It just, it's just not possible um, yeah. financially to do it. But if I can just be really honest about that and go, look, we can't do that yet, but we are trying to work our way towards doing that. Then sure. um, again, kind of ahead of, ahead of your time really to go, here you go. Look, you can literally see what you've got in there. Exactly. And I think that that was sort of the thing is when you create anything, there's a big responsibility. You have to have broad shoulders. You have to, but equally, you can't spend years and years and years not getting a good night's sleep. So you have to be able to sleep at night. So you really do have to wear your heart on your sleeve because you kind of have to be able to say, I've done the very best I can possibly do today. And I need, now need to go to sleep and have a good night's sleep and know that I've not ripped anybody off. I've not said anything that's not true. You know, there's a really, there's a big. Yeah bonus in kind of being transparent about things it really allows you to kind of recharge your battery and kind of keep going and when you've got your own business to run you need that level of energy and I keep saying this I've said this a few times already now that there's a lot of judgment out there and it's even more so with social media and one of the things as a business owner that you will you will come across is things like you know social media trolls and people criticizing you without knowing anything about you and things like that. And I think when I had Ruby and Millie, there, there wasn't, there was no internet. It seems like such a long time ago. Um, so, so we didn't really get that, but nowadays I really don't envy people that are, you know, putting themselves out there. Like it's really difficult to manage that. So yeah, and very, and very vulnerable. And like you say, you know, to use that cliche of having a, a thick, skin skin yeah yeah you really do don't you and just stay true to your values and say no you know this is I'm doing this because this is what I believe in and and you can get swept up in the marketing hype and oh my goodness they're doing that should I be doing that and then every now and then you'll pull it back and go no (laughs) I always have this anecdote that I've worked with some people that literally will change packaging based on what the cab driver that they've they've met today says or the cleaning lady when they get home says I don't like it in pink I want it in red just you've got to go with your gut you've got to be really firm and the thing is it's got to be your DNA in your identity your product your brand is a mirror image of you it's the fact is is that people will buy into it if they're already buying into you as a person anyway yes that's why it's such a huge industry isn't it and that's the Mm. joy in that is that there is, you know, I'm, I have to keep reminding myself that not everybody is going to like my products. And that's okay, Louise. So it, you know, it's about, I know my target market, because I've been treating them for 26 odd years. And I have to stay true to that rather than you, like you say, you panic, because of course, you want the sales, and then you scattergun and think, well, I need to appeal to that person or that skin or yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is it's staying true to that, isn't it? 
I remember, like, we created something like, oh, God, it was like 365 SKUs in the first line of Ruby and Millie. And I just wow. wanted one person to buy one thing. That's all I wanted on that first day. I was like, I just need one person to buy one thing. And then we had a £2 million sales target in the first six months. So we launched in Harvey Nichols August 4th. Today, in 1998, I launched oh, Ruby and Millie. There you go. August 4th <laughs> in Harvey Nichols. And then we launched October 4th. August, September, October. October 4th in Boots. And what was really interesting about that was that they Boots had given us a target of £2 million and we had to, by March, end of the financial year, we had to have sold £2 million worth of product. Wow. And I remember getting the figures that March and it said £240,000. And I was like, oh, my God, we've sold 10% of what we should have sold. And then I literally cried. I was like, this is terrible. They're going to throw the brand out. This is so embarrassing. I've put everything into this. I've quit my job. I've sold another business. I, you know, da 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 da. And somebody left off a zero <gasps> on the data. And we'd made the target. And I felt sick because I thought we hadn't made it. But somebody actually, anyway. <laughs> Um, but wow. yeah, but that's, you know, can you imagine how like, that's a big target, you know, oh, two yeah. million pounds in that six months. That is unbelievable, mm. but equally amazing that obviously you've had hit that target. Um, I, yeah. my, uh, I can remember, I definitely went through a phase of, I mean, it was nineties fashion, but of literally wearing the bootcut jean and the, the black polo neck. I remember that, that image yeah, yeah. Of, of you and... <laughs> Yeah. Ruby, I'm like, I'm just going to wear that for like six months. I, that's I cool. still wear it. I still wear the same <laughs> outfit. But I still, I mean, you can ask anyone in this office and on many occasions, particularly come November, I will be wearing the black polar neck and the, the flares. I, I just love it. do. That's just, I've not changed that outfit in 30 years terrible isn't it that makes me feel very happy Millie no it isn't that's 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 brilliant that's so funny no it's funny isn't it how that image kind of that's just synonymous and and iconic which is really cool so I'm guessing to do what you have done and that sort of serial on well entrepreneurship really sure you're yeah. obviously somebody that doesn't I mean any entrepreneur has to not mind taking risks but do you really, really follow your gut? How do you kind of go, I'm going in? Because you said about selling a business and giving up a job. and Do you know what? It's really difficult to say that because, yeah, I probably do go with my gut. But I do second guess myself quite a bit. I'm not sort of that bold and brave. I like the adrenaline of doing something new and I like to do something that's different and I like to be the first to market in generally in, in something. I like... I like to come up with something yeah. that's quite a radical idea and I like to launch it. And generally I do go with my gut. I've always had, and this is a terrible thing to say really, but I've always had somebody who has sort of helped me and advised me. I do ask friends and family. So I, I do tend to yeah. ask people um, their advice on things. I, I often ask the team here if, if I should we should do something or not. I kind of almost probably do know what should be done, but... I can be a bit afraid of taking those decisions sometimes. So just like anybody, really, I think there's, you know, 
I'm not the kind of person that listens to the cab driver or the cleaning lady, but I do ask the question. I don't always take their advice, but I do ask the question. Um, but I think I think that um, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Um, but but I do pretty much go with my gut. Yeah, I think with the British Beauty Council, for example, I knew that it was the right thing to do. I just knew it, you know, from the yeah. minute I decided yeah. to do it. And so that's a, a brilliant segue because we have to talk about the British Beauty Council. Mm. Um, and I think you're right. Going back to what you say, I can be a little bit like that in as much as you need a sounding board and you need people around you that aren't afraid to go, no, I don't agree with what you're saying. But yeah, then actually true. sometimes that can just inform your decision, can't it? And go, no, actually, yes. oh, I can't believe you've just said that. No, we have to do yeah. this. So it can yeah. help you then listen to your gut, can't it? Yeah, no, totally. I totally agree. Yeah. Was it, am I right in saying, was it 2017 that the British Beauty Council started? Do you know, it's so weird, isn't it? Sometimes I don't even know. I can't remember. I think the pandemic has just made everything a bit it's weird. It, well, that and menopause. <laughs> Um, so I think that we, okay, so, so I'll tell you the, so the long story, it's not really a long story, it's a bit short, but basically we, I kind of wanted to do it in 2016. We started all the back work on it in 2017. So there was quite a lot of stuff to do. So in order to use the words British and council, you have to do a lot of groundwork because you can't just use those words in an organization. You have to get approval from the government to use huh. those words. Okay. But there's a legal implication, so you can't just register British British Council on the on company's house. So I had to do quite a bit of work and go out to... So this is like part and parcel of what you said before. We had to go out to the industry and get them to write letters to support the fact that we were going to create the British Beauty Council. And so we had to get a certain percentage of the industry to, to basically confirm that it was a required preeminent body so that huh. and then those letters had to be compiled by our lawyer and then sent to the office of sensitive words and the office of sensitive words are like the sort of ministry of silly walks where they don't they don't actually operate like like by email you have to send everything in and they write you a letter back it's like the most wow. archaic system but because I had to go to all of these different companies, Space NK and Boots and the mayor's office and all kinds of people, kind of bit cap in hand and get them to write these letters to me. When we got as many as we did get, it gave me the confidence to know that actually what we were doing was the right thing to do because everybody wanted us to do it. So it was kind of like, it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. It was in order to get to do what we wanted to do, we had to get everyone to tell us that they wanted us to do it. Yes. So it was actually a really good exercise. Um, and, it, you know, it really helped. It gave me confidence, massive amounts of confidence, because I don't think I would have had the confidence to do it otherwise, really. Discover today why 97% of users would buy our cleanser again. The holy grail of any skincare routine, the cleanser efficiently cleanses while supporting the skin's moisture level and pH. It's a luxurious foaming cleanser that uses a coconut-derived surfactant to lift makeup, dirt and oils from the skin so they can be washed away. You can buy the cleanser at www.louisethomasskincare.co.uk. Yeah, and for those that don't know what the British Beauty Council is... 
how would you explain it? I mean, it's been hugely helpful from me with my, you know, skin therapy business hat on over the last couple of years. Mm. It's been actually really quite reassuring for it to be there during what we've been through. But for people who don't get it. Thank you. That's really kind of you to say. No, it really, it really has. It's really kind of you to say that because we did, we did, we we really did work very hard during COVID. And I I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life. I thought I was getting to the end of my career and it felt like it was only beginning. Um, So um, what the British Beauty Council is, is it's an advocacy group um, representing the industry, really built on the the sort of concept of raising the reputation of the industry and driving its economic footprint. So making sure that we are at the top of people's minds and that we are considered a highly skilled, flexible and resilient workforce and that our economic contribution to Britain's GDP or Great Britain PLC is recognised at the highest levels. And so that's really... The, the sort of big picture thinking is that, you know, here is an industry that had never had any organisation working directly with government lobbying on its behalf. And there are maybe some industries that have large businesses paying lobby groups to lobby on their behalf. But our industry is made up of 95% SMEs. So we're not just yeah. talking to government on behalf of large corporations. We've also got a large workforce that are in real terms, either working on their own or working with two or three people in a business. So they had no representation before. Yeah. And there are trade bodies, amazing trade bodies that do, do work on behalf of, of those businesses. And, and we work very closely with most of them, if not all of them. But... It, not a not a specific advocacy group amongst them. There are lots of different trade bodies, but no advocacy group. And who knew when you, you know, kind of had that vision and you had that passion and you set that up, how vital that was really going to be. Exactly what you just said for us as SMEs to have a voice and be able to say, hello, we're here we are really important. We want to be conducting our business safely. Of course we do, but we need help and we need support. So, well, just thank you. And yeah, just amazing. And then British Beauty Week, which is September, isn't it? Kind of then. Yeah, that's a funny one, isn't it? British Beauty. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like sometimes you make these things up and then you think no one's going to notice. (laughs) <laughs> no one's going to notice if I just don't do it one year and then everyone notices if you don't do it one year. Yes. Um, so so that kind of came about because we wanted to have like a tentpole event every year that was really to celebrate the industry. And, um, and we've tried different formats every year, which has been really interesting because we're still very early stage in our journey. And this year we are focusing on the power of beauty so it's really about showing the um, social impact of our industry on communities up and down the country we'll be celebrating british beauty week rather than it being in a central location we are sort of democratizing it so businesses can apply to take part you can create your own offers your own um, promotions within your own business all you do is go onto the britishbeautyweek.co.uk website apply to take part that goes before a committee you either get a yes or no generally most people come up with some really interesting ideas I don't think we've said no once so far Um, and then you get listed on a schedule and your community your consumer your client 
can sort of experience what's so brilliant about the beauty industry. Oh, well, that is great. And I've experienced that side of things firsthand because delighted to say that that our event was, yes, accepted, which is is brilliant. So good. I don't know. I'm like sort of waiting for it to happen because I'm not part of the committee. So I don't get to approve anything. So I'm just sort of sitting here thinking, don't know what's going to happen during British Beauty Week, but I'm quite excited to find out. We've got a couple of events internally, but they're many closed door events. They're sort of events that are uh, that revolve around some of the initiatives that we're doing either with sort of sustainability and plastics or things, but they're more with senior executives at some of the big companies because there's some things that need to change about our industry and we need to get their attention. We need to galvanise them and get their attention. I don't think things like sustainability will move in any one direction unless everyone's working together. So we thought British Beauty Week would be a good opportunity to get them all around the table. Yeah, and that that's great. And again, going back to that thing I was talking about with, you know, so now with my skincare range and formulator head hat on, sustainability is tough. You know, it's it's actually quite expensive to be sustainable. Yeah, massively. Isn't it? Yeah. Um and yeah. like you said, unless some of these big brands can almost help us to make that easier, yeah. it's it yeah. isn't gonna move forward. And and again, one thing I won't do is say yeah, we're going to do this or we're doing that and just start with a whole greenwashing. I'd rather go, we can't afford to do that right now, but I promise you we are going to try and do that. This is what's so important about that is that, quite frankly, everybody's on a journey and everyone's on the same journey and no one's really, no one's made it yet. So let's be really honest here and say there is not a single brand that is doing it 100% correct it's still very much a sort of work in progress. But if those larger companies can create an opportunity for you guys to have smaller brands, to have economies of scale at reasonable prices, then we can all move in the same direction at the same pace. Yeah. And maybe get to where we need to be. I mean, the challenges for you is that with the quantities that you're creating at launch the price is hiked up if you're looking at truly sustainable packaging and ingredients. So here's a prime example is plastic is really cheap. That's why everyone uses it. And it's really cheap because those big guys use enormous amounts of it. So if tomorrow plastic, everyone stopped using plastic and used something else, mycelium, mushroom, whatever, packaging paper it would make that cheaper because they'd be able to produce it at scales that would drive the price down but right now we're not so it's very difficult yeah there's a lot of work that needs to be done yeah yeah there is and it's really reassuring actually to hear you say that because again sometimes on a personal level I sit here and go we're not doing enough what what else can we can't do it you know it's really frustrating so not that that kind of makes me rest on my laurels, but it kind of does make me go, okay, that's, yep, yeah, it's realistic. We, you know, it's No, kind of... it's not just you. Yeah. It's not <laughs> just you that's time. struggling. It is like, it's literally a global problem. You know, it's a global yeah. struggle. Everybody's struggling with the same thing. No, absolutely. I need to ask you about the OBE a moment. I know you've probably been asked that so many times. 
Did you see that coming? Was that, I mean, what no. happens? Do you literally, does it fall onto your doormat? And... Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. No, not that, not quite that straightforward. But I did have an MBA <laughs> before, but so I kind of knew the process if that makes, you know, you don't know it's coming, but yeah. you do know, well, you do know it's coming because you get a letter a month before. Wow, only a but month though. the thing is, is that you have, yeah, but you have to wait for an announcement that's made at, between 10 o'clock in the evening and midnight on the 31st of January. Wow. Oh, my goodness me. Sorry, 31st of December. 31st of December. So your New Year's Eve is shot. You're waiting. And also, I was in um, LA at the time, I think, so my timing was a little bit off. Oh. No, that's not true, actually. I wasn't in LA. I got back that day. I arrived back on the 31st of December... And that announcement was that night. And I had a funny feeling when I got off the plane, I would not stay awake. It's a long flight. Oh. That's what happened. I've got that mistaken with another, another time. But, um, and I, I fell asleep and I missed the announcement. Oh, no. Yeah. I know, it's really annoying because I tried everything I could possibly do to stay awake because I got, I got off the plane at like maybe midday or something, got home. And uh, I fell asleep at like sort of, I don't know, five o'clock and then oh slept goodness. through. I know it's really stupid, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, you get this letter and it basically says that you might get it and that you have to wait. You're not allowed to tell anyone and that you have to wait for a month. So you can't say anything to anyone, which is really difficult. Oh, that is. Because the first time I got one, I actually did tell loads of people because I didn't read the spine print. And then I, I sort of, I realised that that was a really stupid thing to do. So the first, yeah, the first time I got one, I told everyone. My, I told my dad and my dad told everyone. So I realised the second time I should probably keep it <laughs> oh, quiet. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, but of course he would. Of course he'd go and tell everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, he was really <laughs> chuffed. And it was, you know, the first time I got, I got the Queen and this time I got given it by Princess Anne and she was really nice. Oh. She's, um, she's very respectful and very complimentary about the beauty industry and she said that she tours colleges a lot and there's a lot of ah. young women who want to go into beauty and that you know requires a lot of skill she kind of knew all that you know it wasn't yeah she was very well versed they're very well prepared those yeah. royals yeah. they are so well briefed it's almost incredible how well briefed they are yeah well that no that's really nice though and actually that reminds me of sort of most of my early career I can remember being really kind of passionate about what I was doing and originally training you know cutting my teeth as a as a beauty therapist having really bad acne and knowing that skin was my thing and I used to get really upset yeah. when people used to say oh oh you're a beautician oh and I no I'm not no I'm yeah, not no, a beautician no, yeah. I am a beauty and skin therapist so I kind of felt like I had to argue the fact of what I was doing that oh yeah totally, you know I did constantly. actually have to have a little bit of yeah a few brain cells to a degree uh, to know what I was doing yeah. it, it's getting better but there is still unfortunately a little bit of that sort of yeah brush being tarred yeah. isn't there it's um yeah, it's a very, very difficult... Well, I mean, a lot of that is do, is around the sort of terminology that's used yeah. um, and has been used for many, many, many years. It's very difficult to get the government to get off the sort of massage parlour route and the nail bars and massage parlours and beauticians and stuff like that. And so it is part of the journey that we're on as a council to kind of move that forward and get people to talk about our industry in a different way. 
and have a different level of respect for it. It's never going to happen overnight. It was just, it's too, it's been too long. We've been here, you know, we've been around too long, but the sort of government haven't moved with us, if that makes sense. Like our industry has changed a lot, hasn't it? In the past sort of 40, 50 yes. years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But sort of certain things haven't moved with it. Yeah. Like here's a prime example, I think, that, you know, think about things like microderma braiding and the use of lasers. Five, six years ago, those weren't as prominent or as, no. you know. I mean, God, I remember laser hair removal. You could only do dark hair on light skin at one point. You know, it wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. The it's very restrictive. changed. Yeah. It is, yeah. and, and actually, that's one of the things I love about our industry is that it is constantly changing and evolving constantly. and it challenges me. And there's, you know, you're always learning, aren't you? There's never this is how this is done. And that that's the joy. It can be a challenge, but it's also a joy that actually you can evolve and you can diversify mm. into so many different areas. What are your kind of motivators or your goals and aims then for the British Beauty Council coming up? Have you got kind of your your sights set on, okay, this is what we're going to work on next or this is this is the big challenge that we really want to try and overcome? Yeah, so basically there are sort of static challenges that the industry faces and they're the same challenges that we had four or five years ago, probably the same 20 years ago, uh, misogyny, equality, equal pay, diversity, inclusion, equity, sustainability, recruitment skills respect you know there are just tons of things that I have I don't even know where I put it but at one point I had a list that's probably not my dropbox somewhere and it's called the challenges facing the industry that list is still the same today as it was back then yeah in some respects we've come a long way but we're not there yet and what we've done is as an organisation, we started with Millie's list of challenges, which I think are the industry's list of challenges. The reason I'm the CEO is I've done a lot of these different jobs, so I know from different parts of the industry what the challenges, what challenges they are generally facing. And then we've created these strategic pillars, and within the strategic pillars, the initiatives will change. Macro initiatives will change on a sort of three-yearly basis, the micro on a yearly basis. So we've got three pillars, talent, growth, and ESG, and then a fourth pillar, which is policy and influence, that sort of overrides and sort of underpins those other pillars. And within each pillar, talent, growth, and ESG, there are the sort of challenges that the industry faces. So talent is about recruitment, skills, education, making sure that we've got a continual flow of talent and there's a clear career path for people coming into the industry and that our industry is regarded as a skilled workforce at the highest levels and that, you know, people understand that, you know, following Brexit, when we lost a large proportion of our workforce because they had to go back to Europe, you can't just replace those people overnight. We would have to reskill hundreds of thousands of people in order to, to actually make our industry work in the way it did before. You know, we're all struggling with finding talent. You know, I own a PR agency, I've got the same problem. When we first started, because we knew Brexit was coming, okay, we didn't know about COVID, but we knew Brexit was coming. We knew those things were going to be a challenge. We knew that, you know, there was going to be a problem with getting people, uh, you know, with with our workforce. We know that our workforce is predominantly female. We know that women don't earn as much as men. We know that the 10% of our work, our, our workforce that are men usually have the top jobs. We know, you know, we know that actually we're quite a welcoming um, industry in terms of 
LGBTQIA people, but we don't necessarily incorporate people from a variety of ethnicities into our sector or into our industry in terms of certain jobs. They're sort of, not that they're prevented from working in certain types of jobs, but they're sort of funneled into certain jobs. Yeah, there's barriers, aren't there? If you see what I mean. So there's real real barriers for certain people from from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And so, you know, a black woman will be expected to focus on Afro hair. Yeah. Why? I'm sure she might be able to do all types of other hair or, you know, it's, it's so, so there's things that we need to sort of look at and say, wait, why is that? And that's not right. And the the only way to do any of these things, and obviously we've got different things, different other pillars of growth and sustainability and diversity, equity and inclusion. The only way I think to tackle any of these problems is to talk about them, to be really open and honest about them. Because if we're trying to sort of greenwash the whole of the industry or you know whatever wash it yes <laughs> we're not whatever that term is there isn't the term but you but you know what I mean yeah, if we're always yeah. trying to sort of con people into thinking that we're better than we are we're never going to really move forward because you no. need to really kind of look at yourself and and say look these are things I'm not doing right and these are things I want to get right and as an industry and a community how do we better ourselves yeah no absolutely and I think possibly a little bit controversial what I'm about to say but I also think that to a degree the curriculum stage needs looking at and adjusting so yes I have a teaching qualification I taught actually back at the college that I trained at and I loved the act of teaching I loved assessing I loved all of that element however the reason I stepped away from it was I just struggled with the curriculum and I would get yeah. really excited and want to take them slightly off piste and say but this is what happens in a sal you can't do this in a salon environment and then would get sh- what are you doing Louise you can't do that you've got to stay to the curriculum I don't think it's diverse enough I mean everybody knows I say this all the time I struggle with the whole education further education piece I think that but there's so many stakeholders and everybody is very yeah. precious about, I wrote this curriculum, therefore it cannot ever be changed. It's like it's like yes. somebody chiseled it in a bloody piece of stone like it's Moses' tablets, you know. This is it. It cannot ever be changed. It's the most frustrating thing. Yeah. I didn't study to be in this industry. I didn't study. I worked. I worked in a shop. I worked in a salon. I did do my cosmetology license, so I did do nails and, and some beauty, but I just think that it's, it's not very modern and it doesn't reflect our industry always. I have actually said that I will look at T-levels and I'm not, I don't want to get too involved in, in, in the sort of intricacy of the education because there is just too much to be done to change it yes. at this point. My goal is to raise it, raise the industry from the, another side and hope that this part, the education part, will follow suit, will move in that direction. Yeah, it almost gently forces that issue then, doesn't it? Yeah, I feel like otherwise you just have to blow it up with a grenade. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I blow, blow those bricks up with a grenade and start all over. I mean, we did get some way in that. We did do some consultation on the National Occupation Standards for Hairdressing and managed to get afro hair 
Afro and textured hair into the curriculum as mandatory, which was very important to me when Brilliant. we started this process. One of the girls that started the British Beauty Council with me, Diana, who's been my right hand for many, 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 many years, even before the British Beauty Council, she studied hair and makeup design um, at university. And she was really frustrated because as a, a, a mixed race woman, she did not have any models or any training no. on people with her hair texture or skin colour. And it was just yeah. terrible, you know. And when she told me that, I was like, that's one thing we're going to change, you know. Yeah, mm. well, that that in itself is is amazing. But yes, we'll get there. We just all have to work as a community to keep chipping away at it, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things that I ask every guest is about their own skin or beauty rituals I'm I'm fascinated to know if there's anything that when you were growing up that you observed or that you overheard that you that you still do today or that you thought oh that's why do I do that that's really weird where did I learn oh my about God, that I'm like the worst person to ask I'm the worst person to ask <laughs> okay so I used to wash my face and when my dad used to come and kiss me goodnight I tell him not to touch my face I have always had I'm very precious about washing my face at night. I don't know why, I just am. Well, that's good. I'm lucky genetically. I've got good skin. I never had acne. I never had anything like that. I've always had a very tough, very good skin. It's kind of a little dehydrated and a bit dry. I wash my face with a flannel, always have done. Ruby once told me to use as hot a flannel as I possibly can. I've been told by many beauty therapists that's not good for your skin. No, don't do but, it, Ruby. Uh, Why would you say that? <laughs> I don't know. She just, it was years ago, probably before we all knew better. But I still quite like it. I don't know. I quite like a hot flannel on my face. And I've always used a sort of oil cleanser to remove my makeup. And then I, so I sort of double cleanse essentially. But I always use an oil makeup remover. But I worked for a Japanese company many years ago. So I've always yes. done that. But I'm quite yeah, a simple person. Yeah, I'm a bit hippie-ish in my skincare regime. I really like oils. I like the way things smell. If something doesn't smell nice, I won't use it. I, again, beauty therapists hate me. I don't do the same thing every day. I don't use the same skincare every day. I use it a different product every single day. <laughs> I love that. I applaud oh, that. I, my little motto is your skin changes every minute of every day. So move yourself around products change it seasonally yeah, yeah no don't, I'm, I'm all for that I, I tend to wake up in the morning and I think to myself I I like I would get dressed in the morning I sort of sit down at my dressing table and I go how do I feel how's my skin feel you know yes. have I washed my hair or can I get through another day without washing it? Have I worked out this morning? Am I a bit sweatier than I would normally be? How are my hormones? Am I having a hot flush or not? You know, I kind of go through a whole process of assessment. Yeah. Then I decide, am I going to wear makeup? Am I not going to wear makeup? How's my skin feeling? Is it a little duller? What time of the month is it? You know, those kind of things. Yeah. Well, that's, that is brilliant. And that is one of the things that I definitely talk about a lot and try and get across to clients which unfortunately sometimes makes it very confusing that minefield that is products and skincare and makeup out there but 
I think it's really important just to give yourself a little bit of time to reflect exactly on that. What do I need today? What does my skin need today? And like you say, what's what what is my day ahead? Is it a day where actually I'm not going anywhere, so I'm not going to be makeup free and I could yeah put a leave-on mask on for most of the morning? So yeah, no, love that. It's it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I think that we don't always not not everyone thinks like that, and then you know. Sometimes I sleep better than other times. Sometimes I sleep more on one side than the other and I get out oh, my face is quite... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when people say, you know, regime, I almost don't like that term because I don't do anything in that way. I sort of tend to wing it. But like I said, it's like with product, it's always very bespoke. Yeah. And also I get sent so many products, it would be ridiculous to assume that I would, you know... Yeah, you've got to try them. Certainly, they're not just you're not just going to stick to that one regime. Yeah. Thank you so much. I literally could talk to you all evening, but obviously I'm very aware of how precious time is. Oh, thank you for for having me. Oh, no, thank you, Millie. And I'd love to think at some point because there's still so many questions on my list that perhaps we could have another another catch up. Before I I let you go. Where can we learn more about you, the British Beauty Council? I'll obviously put it in the show notes, but where are the best places for our listeners to come along and get involved? So we've got BritishBeautyCouncil.com, which is our website, which obviously is where all the information is about the British Beauty Council. There's tons and tons of resources on there. I mean, so many resources for people with brands, products, salons, whatever, you know, people interested in STEM or the environment or whatever it might be. There's tons and tons of stuff on there. So the BritishBeautyCouncil.com. I have a website, MillieKendall.com. I don't even think it has that much on it, but probably will have this podcast on it. (laughs) So that's, um, I do list all podcasts. (laughs) I do put them all on there. And that just is really just my work. And I do consultancy and stuff like that. So I do some other bits and pieces for brands and people as and when they ask and if I have the time. So yeah, it's just sort of, you know, just because I, I find sort of working with other people and brands quite interesting as well still. Yeah. And then britishbeautyweek.co.uk really is the most important at this point because yes. it's August and it's 31 days away. Yes, so um, britishbeautyweek.co.uk and that has all the information about British Beauty Week on it. Fantastic. And also very prevalent on Instagram as well, aren't you, with the British Beauty Council yeah. and yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, we've got all the social media platforms. I mean, funny enough, actually, we've got a very big Facebook following as well. And also LinkedIn. Now that's a dark horse. Yes, I agree. It's sort of like the last six months for me. I feel like LinkedIn yeah, has it's become really, really become the... Yeah, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. It feels yeah. like it's changed, but in a in a good way. I really like it. I've, I've Funny enough, I've always liked it. But yeah, it's definitely become really important. And I yeah. think for a business, if you've got a business and you're out there and you're you know, not sure how to connect with people, LinkedIn is a superb way of connecting with people Yeah, well, business-wise, for sure. Thankfully, you know, that's how I connected with you. So again, thank you. Yes, exactly. See, yeah, <laughs> it, it really works, is. It people. really is very important. Yeah, it does. <laughs> really, really does. Oh, thanks, Millie. Well, I will let you go. And um, as I say, would would be a joy to have you back on at some point. I think there's a couple of topics that we could really hone in on and be quite sure. specific I'd about. Love to. So, but thank you for now. And um, yeah. Thank you, Louise. Really uh, much appreciated. And now I know that August 4th is today. 
I'm feeling like we should celebrate. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's Because really it's the cool. Ruby and Millie's anniversary today. Oh, I know. it's, it's so funny. Be. I hadn't thought. Yeah, so funny. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you, Millie. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this first episode. What an inspiring conversation it was with Millie, proving that with hard work and determination and a love for your industry, you can achieve anything. Don't forget to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And I'd love to hear from you. So leave me a comment too. And a review would be very, very welcome, as this podcast really isn't possible without your support. Don't forget also to check out Louise Thomas Skincare at louisethomasskincare.co.uk.